Welcome to the Bay Area Community Church Podcast. Our mission is to make passionate, maturing followers of Jesus from here to the nations. We hope you will be changed by this message and invite you to visit us in the greater Annapolis area. If you would like to learn more about our church and ministries, please visit our website at bayareacc.org. Good morning, everybody. Happy Sunday to you. Welcome back. Good to see you. Welcome if you are here or if you're watching online. I get it. Couldn't pull yourself out of bed today. Crying in a pool of purple tears. Our condolences to the Baltimore Ravens. Anyway, that game was lame. So, oh, but this, but today's going to be fun. However, uh, welcome back. We are in week two of a series that is entitled... He changed everything, the life of Jesus. If you were here with us last week, we took a look at John's gospel starting in chapter 2, verses 1 through 12. And we saw the first sign that Jesus did. And we made a point that it wasn't so much the signs uh, that were the main thing, but the main thing was what the signs pointed to, pointing to the divinity of Jesus. Now, in chapter 3, there's this guy named Nicodemus. And Nicodemus is seeing these signs and he's realizing that something is up with this rabbi from Galilee named Jesus. Something odd and strange is happening, and so with good intentions, this guy named Nicodemus is going to come to Jesus and have perhaps one of the most important conversations that has ever happened on planet Earth. That's what we're going to look at, 15 verses from John chapter 3. But to help get the blood pumping and get us thinking about the mindset of this guy named Nicodemus, I want to demonstrate or illustrate a couple things for you real quick. Uh, this is a ladder, and I'll put this ladder here, and I know you guys in the back, even if you have 2020, there's no way you're reading these signs. I'll tell you what are on these signs. Because Nicodemus had a particular mindset and a worldview, and he had, he had a ladder in mind by which you climb to earn God's favor, good graces, and merit, perhaps, seeing the kingdom. And so there was a couple, there was a pecking order and some different levels here uh, for the Jewish mind back in Jesus' day. So starting on the very bottom, questionably on the ladder at all, is this term Gentile. So when you look in the Bible and you see the word Gentile, it simply means anybody that's born outside of the uh, chosen, promised family of God, the Israelites. You know, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and his sons, and everybody who followed in that family tree. If you were not of that bloodline, you were a Gentile. That means you were a pagan, lost without God in the world. So if you're here today and you don't have any Jewish blood running through your veins... Gentile. A step above the Gentiles, perhaps, were the Samaritans. These were sort of like the half-breed Jewish mix people where they did have some Jewish roots, but they adopted other pagan worship practices, and they took bits and pieces of the Bible, and they made a new temple in a new place, which, by the way, made Samaritans despised uh, by the Jews. And so actually, next week, we're going to meet a Samaritan, and we're going to see how Jesus interacts with her. But Samaritans are there. Above Samaritan was a God-fearer. This was somebody who was investigating the faith of, you know, Israel and checking out the temple and, and talking to people. What is God like? Yahweh. We've heard stories. And, and what does it mean to follow this God, the creator, and all of that stuff? And so God-fearer, you were a little bit higher. And then if you happen to be born in 
to the Jewish family, you actually came out with a very high place on the ladder because you have the promises, you have the prophets, you have the Torah, you have God's word to you, and you're part of that covenant people, very special place in the ladder. And then if you're among the Jews and you want to make some vocation out of serving God, maybe you're from the tribe of Levi, you might start working for the church, so to speak, and be a priest. And so the priests were pretty high up in the pecking order of who's closer to God and, you know, who's going to get to access the kingdom. Then there was a special group of people. At their height, it was about 6,000 or so of these folks called Pharisees. A Pharisee was like a lawyer, but a lawyer of God's law. And so, you know, there's these laws in the Old Testament, and then the Pharisees came along, and they, they took those laws, and they built other laws around them, and they followed all these laws to a T. They were living and breathing it. These Pharisees, a lot of them would have memorized the first five books of the Old Testament, which was crazy. They went to school. They were studied. Like these were the PhD guys for the Jewish law. So they knew about God. They knew the whole deal. And that puts you pretty high up. So Paul in the New Testament was a Pharisee. Nicodemus, who we're going to meet in just a second, is a Pharisee. And if you happen to be a part of a select group of the Pharisees, you'd find yourself all the way at the top in this little group of people called the Sanhedrin. This was the ruling group of Pharisees that sort of governed the events of, of everything that was happening in this class of people. So this was the mindset and the worldview and the life of Nicodemus. And it was simply that if I can scale this ladder, I mean, I can get to the top and I can pretty much peer over the horizon of the kingdom and I'm closer to God up here. And so if anybody's going to make it to heaven, it's the people sitting on top of the ladder. And you might say, well, Pat, that's old school and that's biblical and that doesn't happen today. Well, let me put another ladder here for you because I do think we can fall into this mindset even today with church folk 2020. So this is the church folk ladder. And I'll let you know what these words say in the back. So on the very bottom rung, you have an atheist. An atheist is a person who says there is definitively no God. Don't tell me there's a God. You can't prove there's a God. I believe there is no God. We are simply here just by way of chance, time, and matter. And when, we're, when we die, that's it. It's over, pure annihilation. So don't, don't talk about any of that stuff. An agnostic step above. An agnostic would say, well, here's the thing. We can't really know if there is or if there's not. So I'm in the camp of, I don't really know. Your truth is your truth. Mine is mine. We're all going to get along, and that's cool. Atheists, you know, on the internet, they're a little bit more aggressive and angry than the agnostics. Agnostics are a little nicer with social media commentary. On the next rung up, we have the creaster. The creaster is the person who comes to church at Christmas and Easter. <laughs> you know these people. They're in your family, and maybe you're here today. <laughs> They come a couple times a year, the high holy days. You know, i got to pay my respects to baby Jesus. got to pay my respects to risen Jesus and all that. Uh, that's the creaster. You might even then take a step up the ladder and become a regular attender of a church. Did you know the national statistic for a church like Bay Area is people come 1.8 times a month? So about half the time, if you come to church half of your Sundays, you're actually considered in the church world a regular attender. Then if you get a little crazy, you might even put on your lanyard or a deep blue shirt and make some coffees out there or join the parking team. You might be a volunteer at your church. Then that's when people know that you're really in it for Jesus. Like you're, you're getting borderline freaky right here at the volunteer. <laughs> but we love you and we need you. So... <laughs> If you really lose your mind, 
you climb up to minister. This is a person who's going to work at a church or a parachurch organization. A person's going to perhaps raise support, go to the mission field, or, or something to that effect where you're getting paid in some regard uh, because of this, this church thing happening. And then finally, if you reach Greg St. Cyr status, you are missionary. Missionary is like, I'm living and breathing for Jesus wherever I am. I'm traveling. I'm going into hard, dark, evil places, and I'm just bringing the good news of hope. And the mindset is the people at the top of these ladders, they got to be the people who, are, who have the best access to Jesus, like the best access to God. And you, you start to figure if anybody is going to be able to attain the kingdom of God, it's going to be the people who put in the work to get up the ladder. And so we have this mindset of a ladder of works. This was Nicodemus's mindset. What's about to happen is Jesus is about to blow Nicodemus's mind. Keep this in mind. Jesus is about to blow Nicodemus's mind. Not church, not religion, not dogma, but Jesus is about to change everything. So let's look at this conversation for a moment. Before I do, let me just pray for our time as we jump in, just to set our hearts and minds right. Heavenly Father, we just pause to say thank you for your word, altogether good, helpful, and practical. And now as we sit under your authority and your word, would you change us from the inside out in the power of the Holy Spirit. And we pray this in the mighty name of Jesus this morning. Amen. John 3, verse 1. Now there is a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews. We've already discussed who a Pharisee was, pious, devout, educated, scholarly, and he's a ruler, meaning he was more than likely one of the Sanhedrin, maybe only 70 of those guys all together in that day. Now, if you know the New Testament account, if the New Testament accounts between Jesus and Pharisees, they're usually dicey. He's usually calling Pharisees out, like you brood of vipers, you hypocrites, you're leading people down a hole and they're never going to get out. So there is like, there is a major struggle between Jesus and the Pharisees. But this conversation's different because it seems like Nicodemus is genuinely coming to Jesus interested in what in the world is happening with you. Jesus. And we see that in what Nicodemus has to say. John tells us that this man came to Jesus by night and said to him, Rabbi, we know that you're a teacher come from God, for no one can do these things, or do these signs that you do, unless God is with him. So we get this detail that Nicodemus comes at night. And so you can help to remember this story by just calling it Nick at night. Nick comes at night <laughs> Probably because he's just not ready to go public with Jesus. There's a lot of stir in the Pharisee group about Jesus. And his peer group wouldn't be cool with him coming to have a conversation with Jesus. It would be like a sign of support or something like that. So probably just by the cover of night, just in the privacy of two guys talking on a roof, maybe a couple disciples gathered around, they're having a genuine conversation. Rabbi is a term of respect for Jesus. He says, I know you're a teacher, I see as much, but then you're doing things that we've never seen. We heard about the water and the wine thing. We're hearing about the people getting healed and the blind people and all of that. It's clearly, God's got to be with you or you wouldn't be able to do these things. What's the deal? And this is his question. Now, when you come to Jesus without trying to trick Jesus, trap Jesus, you know, get him off his course. And if you have a straight up inquiry and you bring it honestly and genuinely, genuinely to Jesus, he gives you an honest and genuine answer. And so he, Jesus here is going to be about as straightforward as he can be about the deepest, most profound spiritual truths of life. 
And verse 3, uh, the, the next verse we're going to see, might be the most important sentence ever uttered on planet Earth. Are you ready for it? Okay. He's going to go straight to the heart of the matter, speak to the most direct issue with this Pharisee. Jesus answered him, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Now, there's two churchy phrases in here that I want to just address. First being kingdom of God. In the Bible, when you see the term kingdom of God, it generally refers to any, any place where the reign and the rule of God is happening. And so the, the kingdom breaks in there. The kingdom breaks in here. Jesus is on the scene. He says the kingdom of God is at hand. And that's true. But in John's gospel, the context shows us that this kingdom of God is speaking about eternal life. And to see the kingdom of God means to eternal attain eternal life, both in quality and duration. So he's talking about heaven, uh, to put it another way. Then there's this little phrase that gets thrown around here and there, and it makes things seem just like culty. <laughs> born again. I know, who uses born again like in, in regular conversation? Not much. You say born again, you're like, oh, you're part of a cult. What's the deal with you? Here's the thing. Jesus said born again. You know what the Greek translation for born again is? It's born again. <laughs> It's born from above. It's a new kind of birth. Jesus is simply speaking to a spiritual reality. He's not talking about reincarnation. There's other worldviews that would believe, well, once you die, you come back as another thing until you work off bad karma, until you become your perfect self. Not the case. He's talking about not reincarnation, but regeneration. Taking something that is old and dead inside and making it brand new spiritually. That's what he's starting to get at. But... This is problematic for Nicodemus. It's problematic because born again is not on my ladder. <laughs> I got all the rungs. I got all the works. I can follow all the rules. I can do everything perfect and everything right. Love God, love my neighbor, do everything perfectly. Check all the boxes. And I don't see born again on this thing. It's troubling because this is a ladder of all the things that I can do. But the very nature of a new birth is something that we can't do ourselves. You can't birth yourself. So it's actually a precarious position. It's, an, it's a bit troubling because that means as human beings, when we talk about heaven, we are utterly dependent on God to do something in us to make us different. And it appears it was troubling for Nicodemus in his response back to Jesus. Whether he's confused, befuddled, or just concerned, this is what he says back. He says, well, how can a man be born when he's old? Can he enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born? Now, keep in mind something here, because you've probably heard this verse before, perhaps. And it's likely that Nicodemus, he's like PhD. He's scholarly. He's learned. He, he understands hyperbole and metaphor. And it's either that he's completely dense and obtuse and is just like, well, how can a person be born again? Like, he can't bunt Benjamin button his way back into the womb. And, the, and he, so he gets that's not going to happen. But what he's really concerned with is the impossibility of how things get changed from the inside out. Like, how is this supposed to happen? Especially for an old guy. This guy was probably an elderly gentleman at this point. Thinking, how can I be born again? I'm like, set my ways. I got my whole thing. It's not on there. What do you mean, born again? And Jesus answered 
again, straightforwardly, and he says this, he, he says this refrain, truly, truly, I say to you. When Jesus says, truly, truly, I say to you, it's like, okay, I'm listening up doubly now. Second time he says it. He's going to say the same thing. He's just going to deepen it. So he, he's trying to help Nicodemus really understand. He says, truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. That which is born of the flesh is flesh. That which is born of the Spirit is spirit. Now, Jesus is not talking about baptism here. Infant baptism, adult baptism. He's not talking about baptism being the water by which you need to be saved. That's not the thing. What he's referring to most likely here is just like when you came out of your mom in water, that was your natural physical birth. Like that's one way you're born. You got to be born of the spirit. Flesh is flesh, spirit, spirit. We have them both. You got to be born here. You got to be born here. See the kingdom. He's trying to really help this sink in. So to put it to you graphically or, or another way, here's a, here's a person, a human being with a heart. And now you can say this is a God-shaped hole in, in my heart. Or you can say this is just a, a heart that needs to be born. At any rate, it's a missing thing. It's a dead thing. It's needing regeneration. And that person is physically alive, five senses, all the faculties, the whole deal. But there is something inside the invisible soul of a human being that needs to change and be changed by God. So that heart needs to get filled. That needs, needs to turn red. There's my, there's my illustration for you. It needs to change from the inside out. And, and Jesus is saying that this is the work of the Spirit. This is something only God can do. And it's actually a pretty good deal because when God comes to us, he says, hey, here's the deal. I'll take your sin and I'm going to give you my spirit. <laughs> it's a great exchange. And when he says you're going to have the spirit, it's not talking about like Star Wars, like the force, like there's, you know, the, the dark force, dark side, light side, evil force, all those, all the many forces. The Holy Spirit's not a force. The Bible describes the Holy Spirit as a person revealing the Trinitarian nature of God as Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And it's the Holy Spirit, the eternal God, who's going to then somehow mysteriously take up residence in your soul, causing you and quickening you to be born again. So this is what Jesus is getting at here. And at this point, you say, okay, whoa, 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 whoa. Slow down. Jesus can be talking about anything he wanted right now. He could be calling it spirit. He could be calling it vanilla fudge. He could be calling it, you name it. It doesn't matter because Jesus is talking about stuff that's invisible. Because <laughs> you can't see it. So call it whatever you want, Jesus. You can't see it. So maybe it's not even real. And maybe Jesus had that in mind because of what he says next in this little object lesson to Nicodemus. In helping Nicodemus grasp this, he says, Do not marvel that I said to you, you must be born again. Apparently Nicodemus is tripping over this. Then Jesus uses an object lesson. The wind blows where it wishes. You hear its sound. You don't know where it comes from or where it goes. So it is with everyone born of the Spirit. So here's these two guys. They're kicking it. They're probably on a rooftop outside. It's a nice night, kind of like last night. Last night got a little windy. Maybe just a little wind came in, and Jesus says, it's like this, Nicodemus. You felt it, right? It was real, right? But you didn't see it. It's like that with the Spirit and spiritual truths and realities. You can't see 
the change. You cut me open, you're going to find organs. You're not going to find a soul. But God says, I've created human beings in my image, and there is an unseen soul. Another dimension, a spiritual dimension that's just as real as the wind. You can't see it, but you feel it. And it's somehow there. And back then, you know, this Nicodemus really understood, like, you can't, you can't figure out the wind. You know, we, we, un we understand some wind patterns now, and we understand when it might be windy, might not. But back then, it was like complete mystery. It's like, it's like that. Nicodemus is about to respond, and this is actually going to be the last thing we hear from Nicodemus in the story. He's basically at the same place. <laughs> How can this be? I mean, I hear you. I hear the words coming out of your mouth, but how can this be? And Jesus pushes back a little bit here, and he says, are you the teacher of Israel, and yet you don't understand these things? You see, Jesus also knew his Bible, although he didn't go through any of the schools or any of the training, and the people knew it, which is why it was crazy, because here's this carpenter from Galilee, and he's blown people's minds with his teaching. But he also would have recognized that Nicodemus knows his Old Testament and Nicodemus should have been in touch with the fact that God was never just about following the external rules and climbing a ladder to earn his good graces, but God was always about the faith that we have in the internal transformation based on his promises. And that Nicodemus shouldn't be surprised that there was going to be a real spiritual significant transaction in the heart of people. He should have saw it coming. He would have seen it in Deuteronomy. He would have seen it in Jeremiah. He would have seen it in Joel chapter 2. And he would have seen it in one example, because we don't have a whole lot of time. I'll give you one example from Ezekiel chapter 36. Now this had a specific context for those Israelites, but we can make applications today with what we're talking about in the new birth because God tells his people, and I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you, and I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh, and I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. So here is this vision by this prophet about a time that God is going to breathe life into dry bones and cause dead things to come to life and old things to be renewed and things that were not yet living to be born again. And Jesus is like, how do you not see this? It's all over there. And Jesus, before he closes here, he's actually going to tell, give Nicodemus the reason he has authority to speak on such matters. Because if I'm Nicodemus, I'm like, okay, man, who are you anyway? <laughs> and so what Jesus has to say next, uh, we see in verses 11, 12, and 13. This is the last time he's going to say this, truly, truly, I say to you. Truly, truly, I say to you, we, more than likely, his him and his disciples, we speak of what we know and bear witness to what we have seen, but you do not receive our testimony. If I have told you earthly things and you don't believe, how can I believe? How can you believe if I tell you heavenly things? And then we get to his unique authority to speak on such matters when Jesus says, no one has ascended into heaven except he who descended from heaven, the Son of Man. The Son of Man is Jesus' favorite Old Testament reference for himself coming from Daniel chapter 7, and the Son of Man is a term that speaks to the divinity of the Messiah who was to come as the promised Savior. So when Jesus says Son of Man, he's claiming his own divinity. And he's saying this, Nicodemus, no one's ever ascended to heaven. 
No one has ever taken the ladder of good works and gotten to the top and ended up in heaven. That's not how it works. It's not about us walking up to God. Salvation is about God walking down to us. The Son of Man descended from heaven. And you'll recognize this from Philippians, that Jesus didn't hold on to his divinity as a thing to be grasped, but he emptied himself. And he became a human being and took on flesh and came not only as a human, but as a servant for us and then went all the way to the cross. I have authority to speak on these things, Nicodemus, because one, I know the heavenly things because I came from there, number one, and I have come down to let you know how it works. No human being has ever walked up this ladder and met God. The big question then, before we hit the last two verses of the day, is, okay, well, if, if climbing the ladder of good works doesn't get you the kingdom, what does? And Jesus speaks this as clearly to Nicodemus as he can. Two sentences that at first are going to seem completely weird to you, but then they're going to make complete sense. So here's our last two verses of the day. He says to Nicodemus, here's how this works, buddy. And as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so the Son of Man must be lifted up, that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. Now I understand that that first sentence is like, what? Moses, wilderness serpents. What are we talking about? What does this have to do with being born again? Jesus. This is a reference from the Old Testament, Numbers chapter 21. Here's the story. This is a story that Nicodemus would have probably known by heart. So Jesus goes to what he knows and he uses it. Numbers 21, if you've never seen the story, it's a short story. Moses leading the Israelites out of Egypt and they're in the wilderness and the people rebel against Moses and against God. They say, Moses, we want to go back to Egypt. This stinks, this God who brought us out. He brought us out to kill us. This food that you've been giving us, this manna is, is junk. We don't want it anymore. And so this aroused God's righteous anger. And what does God do? He afflicts his people with fiery serpents, reed snakes that can and kill you. And they did. And snakes invaded the camp and they were biting the people and the people were dying. This event caused the people to think about what in the world they had just done. They come to a place of repentance. They go back to Moses. Moses prays. God relents. And God provides the way for people to be saved from death. And it was an odd way, but it was God's way. God tells Moses, Moses, I want you to fabricate a bronze snake and I want you to lift it up on a pole, which is interesting. Does that remind you of anything in the medical profession? I want you to take a snake. I want you to put it on a pole. I want you to lift it up. And if anyone is dying because they have been snake bit, tell them to look at the snake and they will be saved. Because this is the way I'm going about it. I'm taking the serpent, I'm lifting him up. They look. Now, looking is so easy, a child can do it. But when he says look, what was happening with the Israelites when they looked? When they looked, they were turning to what God did for them to save them in faith. And it was a little weird, but they were doing it. Like God didn't say, if you're bit by a snake, 
grab a ladder, try to get away from the snakes, try to figure out how to heal yourself, do a bunch of good works, and then you're not going to die. No, God said, here's the way that I choose. I'm going to lift up the serpent. It's like that with the Son of Man. Jesus would be lifted up on a pole, and all who look to him will be saved, causing a real spiritual transaction in the soul of becoming a regenerate, born-again person. And looking to Jesus isn't just like, well, okay, I see him. Okay, good. No, it's trusting that that's the way that God provided me to have a new heart. So that's what it has to do with being born again. Jesus says, this is the way it works. Now we're in a series called He Changed Everything. Well, what would have been changing in Nicodemus' worldview? Well, first and foremost, if that's the way the kingdom of God works, then I don't need the ladder. And in effect, I can, just, I can just take these ladders down. Because the people on the top aren't necessarily any closer to God than the people on the bottom necessarily. Now, I'm not saying that the things aren't on the ladder aren't good. We want people to go to church and become missionaries and pastors and all that. Those are good things. But those things don't have to do with going to heaven. Jesus took care of the going to heaven thing. Those are things we get to do because of what he has done. But so there's no ladder when it comes to the discussion on the kingdom of God and eternal life. It's Jesus plus nothing. It's just the good news. Like, okay. But here's the deal. What else changes? What else happens? Well, we've been skirting around it. This whole idea of being born again. What in the world does that even mean? Well, that means God starts to change you from the inside out. And new and exciting things are happening. So let me speak to a little bit of that before we break the huddle this morning. Let me put this heart back up here for us. Because this is a picture of Ephesians chapter 2 in the beginning where Paul says, listen, every one of us, every human being born under the sun is dead in our trespasses and sins. By nature, we are objects of wrath. Like this is bad news. But then verse 4, God breaks in, says, in, in my love and in my mercy and in my grace, I send Jesus to rescue you. And so upon that exchange, we have a new heart. And with a new heart comes a brand new spiritual identity that we can say, here's who we are. We are people in Christ. And in this day and age, in our world, you're going to want to forge your identity from all kinds of different places. Your peer group is going to speak into your life and you're going to begin to wear labels of, well, this is who I am. Or perhaps your successes are going to start to define you. Or even your failures are going to start to define you. And you're going to wear all these labels and all these fake identities but God says, no, this is who you really are. You are mine, signed, sealed, secured, delivered in Christ. And that has profound, life-changing implications for us. The first of which being you have a new hope. You have a living hope and a resurrected Jesus. And eternity is barreling at you at the speed of which you are going to see the grave. And that hope means heaven, which is undefiled, imperishable, uh, everlasting, kept in heaven. An inheritance that's just waiting for us to participate in it. And it's not pie in the sky because Jesus said that this was coming. And this is hopeful, but it's not just hope and like, okay, there's an afterlife and it'll be kind of cool. Even more than cool, because some of you guys think afterlife sounds boring. Afterlife with Jesus, ultimately exciting, because you will never get to the bottom of the riches of his beauty and depth and creativity. And eternity is just going to seem like it's going to feel almost timeless, because you're just enjoying yourself more and more and more, because you are getting to spend face-to-face -face time with the creator, it's going to be crazy and a bit mind-blowing. Somebody started clapping. That means they're excited about it. But more than just a heavenly hope, there's a hope today. 
Because if you are God's in Christ, that means that he is able to work all things together for the good of you. Those who love him and are called according to his purpose. God is sovereign and he will allow certain things to come into your life. Some of them might feel good. Some of them might not feel good. But your hope is that even in the midst of difficult, trying circumstances, you can have a joy and a peace that passes all understanding because he resides in you. And that's part of what it means to be uh, born again. We can trust in those sovereign promises. And flowing from that, you have a no kidding helper, a new helper. This is the third person of the Trinitarian Godhead that we've already mentioned, the Holy Spirit, the person of the Holy Spirit taking up residence in your soul. And he is described not as an invisible force, but as a person who is able to help, comfort, guide, illuminate God's truth. And when you are walking with Jesus in the power of the Holy Spirit, it's like you have a jet pack on. Now you can, you can kind of fight God and you can fight against him, but when you are trying to seek his will and do what he wants, it's like the jet pack of the Holy Spirit is just opening doors for you. And you get so much further, so much faster, because it's as if you're in a jet stream because of this helper. You also have a new dad. Some of you guys got jacked up relationships with your dads. A lot of people do. And here's the reality. We have a new dad. A new dad means we've been adopted into the family of God. We are heirs with Christ. And when God sees us, he sees his kids. And here's the thing. This is going to be an unpopular notion. We like to say, God made all the children in the world. They're all his children. I would rephrase it. God made all the people, they are his creatures. Those who receive new hearts are adopted into his family as children. I would put that distinguishing mark on it. That's hopeful because that means we can just talk to the creator like we would a good dad. That's a good thing that we get to do. And when we can grasp that, we also grasp this little nugget. We have a new record. And our dad, our heavenly father, is not keeping score. Some of us have this mindset that God's up there, like on a throne with the heavenly checklist. And every time you do something wrong, he's just writing it down and marking it down. Like, oh, Monday night, I saw that. Not good. Tuesday afternoon, I'm going to remember that. Here's the thing. When you get to meet God face to face and he says, hey, check out the, let me see your file folder for your soul. You get to pull out your file folder for your soul and show him. And it's just blood stained. It's just all red with Jesus' blood. And he's like, all right, you're cool. You're totally holy. But here's the thing. When it comes to our lives and we mess up and we blow it, quench the spirit, sin, whatever, we can have a record, another kind of record playing in our mind. Like, okay, man, shame and guilt and I shouldn't have done that. And I blew it there. And this is who I am. God's not thinking that. God's thinking, I've taken your sin and I've removed it as far as the east is from the west. And I'm not thinking about you like that. So you don't need to think about you like that. It's a new record. It's a new record to play in your mind as a new creation. 
And this, this wells up in us a new gratitude and a new thankfulness just to walk around as thankful and dependent people. And we've already seen like the effects of gratitude you know, in general. We, it's, you know, it's well documented that gratitude goes a long way in positivity and all these other things. And that's the case, but we have the best kind of gratitude because we've been given so much grace upon grace. And it keeps on flowing because not only we have new gratitude, we have this new wisdom. Wisdom about the deepest things about life and death, heaven, hell, how the universe works because people are wandering around the woods looking for signs. Why am I here? What is this all about? What happens when we die? What religion's true? Can we even know? Is it even a big deal? I don't know. But you're walking around with wisdom in your back pocket saying, yeah, well, there's a creator. I know his name. And that's significant. And more than knowing spiritual mysteries about the world, you also have wisdom where you can make good godly decisions because as you grow in this new creation and as you learn and your mind gets formed and transformed, you're able to discern what God's will is for your life and you're able to take the next right steps. God doesn't always show you like the map of your life, like the whole thing, but he's going to show you the next right step to take and that's a good godly decision and you have wisdom to make those decisions. Because he wants you to have those, that wisdom to make those decisions. More than that, you also have something to give. You have new forgiveness to offer people. Because as a person in touch with all of these things, you realize, okay, I have been forgiven a lot. God did that for me and he took it for me. That's what forgiveness feels like. It's kind of awesome. And you know, at the end of the day, it's just difficult to give something you don't have. But when you have this deep reservoir of forgiveness, you're able to be the kind of person who's not going to hold the grudge, the kind of person who's not going to seek revenge, but the kind of person that says, you know what? I know you wronged me, but I'm going to forgive you. Why? Because I'm entrusting myself to him who judges justly. That's his battle to fight. And I am free to forgive you. That's part of what it looks like to have this born again thing happening because there's just a freedom there. You have this new forgiveness to offer and then a couple little fun things. You get new fish to fry. This is a fun one. All my hunters out there, all my fishermen out there, all my Eastern people out there. You see, when Jesus calls you into this new life, he says, I know you got hobbies that you love and I know you're gonna build a career and you're going to go for your security and build that company and all of the good stuff you're going to do. And he says, I, I'm going to high five you on all of that. But I got something that's going to sit on top of all those priorities. So follow me and I'm going to make you a fisher of men. Didn't he tell Matthew that? Chapter 4 maybe. Matthew, I'm going to make you a fisher of men. He lays on your heart a new burden. Not the burden of religion that the Pharisees were heaping on people. Keep these rules, do these things, all of that. You get to take that burden off. Because, you know, we're saved by works. We're saved by the works of Jesus. He did that. So then we take a burden off, but then that allows us to go to a friend, brother, sister, Christ, family, whatever, and we're able to carry a burden for other people. And that's something we get to do. Because Jesus says we should carry one another's burdens. And then finally, because I ran out of room on the slide, we have new desires that will begin to well up in our hearts. And these desires are going to be things you might never thought you wanted to do before. And perhaps they might even start with, well, I used to be all about my stuff, and now I'm just kind of desiring I want to Maybe put others first. And maybe it just starts there. 
and other weird things like that might start happening in your life. So leaving this up here just for a second, as you reflect on this picture, and it's just a picture, could you imagine what would happen if that person and these people are unleashed in the world to love and to forgive and to be thankful and to have answers to deep questions and to go fishing for men, carry burdens, have godly, righteous, honoring desires. This is a picture of you. And you might say, well, if you got rid of the ladder, well, where's all the good works supposed to come from? <laughs> they come from you. Because this is a picture of a grace-built person who is built to grace-bomb people. And this means you get to leave these four walls with this newness of life, being reminded of who you are, and then go walk in those good works that God has prepared in advance for you to walk in. Knowing that none of that's getting us anywhere, we just got in, and now we get to be this kind of person. So whatever happened to our buddy Nick? Did Nicodemus ever become this person? It seems like he did. You turn the pages over to John chapter 7, and there's a confrontation with the Pharisees, and they want to bring Jesus in for a trial, uh, or they just want to arrest Jesus, point blank. And, and Nicodemus stands up, and he's named by name, and he says, well, shouldn't we give anyone a fair hearing before they're judged? So he's starting to stand up for Jesus among his peer group who want to take Jesus out. And then flip all the way to the end of the gospel, John chapter 19, Jesus has been crucified, hung on the cross, and they're taking his body off the cross. And who is there at the foot of the cross? Nicodemus. What is he doing there? Well, very publicly and very much in the light, he brought 75 pounds of aloe, myrrh, and linens to give Jesus a proper royal burial. So it seems like at some point, we don't know, something changed in his heart. So in closing, let me just ask you, maybe you're here today and you're ready to trade out the ladder. Maybe you're just ready to step off the ladder of performance and earning and accept what the Apostle Paul calls a free gift of grace. And it's as simple as looking to Jesus, but when we say look to Jesus, it means to trust him. And you bring him your doubts and you bring him your worries. And according to Jesus' words, you believe. And so if that's you today, here's how I'm going to close our gathering I'm just going to pray, and I'm going to make an invitation that if you'd like to step off the ladder and receive this gift that's so readily available and has been made available by his grace, I'm going to give you an invitation and a present. The invitation is to trust him, and the present is in the, in the cloak of darkness. Just like Nicodemus had the opportunity to talk with Jesus in the dark, I'm going to ask everybody just to close their eyes and pray. And 
if your desire is to take Jesus up on his invitation, you can simply pray along with me in the cover of darkness and the silence of your hearts. And if you mean it, I guarantee he'll hear it and he will do the spiritual heavy lifting in your life. So you can pray with me now. Jesus, today, I want to respond to your grace and give my life completely to you. My cares and my concerns and my doubts and my drama and my sin. I come simply looking and trusting in your completed work on the cross that secures for me forgiveness and eternal life. So come into my life now and make me a new person. Help me to grow every day with the helper and the power of the Holy Spirit and help me to walk in the newness of life. Today, Jesus, I really just want to say thank you. Amen. Well, hey, if, if you're here and you prayed that to your creator and you meant it, here's all I want you to do. Just tell somebody you did. All right? Just tell somebody about it. And you guys have a great week. See you next Sunday.